we know there's a, a large body of research that shows that when people get really angry, they exhibit measurable cognitive biases. Um, so literally, you become worse at thinking. You become you become poorer at reasoning and problem solving. Where the angrier you get. Welcome to the Seamland Podcast. I'm your host Seamland, and our guest today is Donald Robertson. Donald is a writer about Stoic philosophy and an expert in cognitive behavioral therapy. He's written several books like How to Think Like a Roman Emperor and Stoicism and the Art of Happiness. Donald has just now come out with a new comic book called Verissimus that talks about the life of Marcus Aurelius and the philosophy of Stoicism in a comic book format. This episode is brought to you by Bond Charge, formerly known as Blue Blocks. My favorite light and sea conversation companies, Blue Blocks, has rebranded themselves as Bond Charge. They're now involved with a huge range of evidence-based products to improve your wellness and life in every way. Their extensive range of premium wellness products helps you to sleep better, perform better, have more energy, recover faster, balance your hormones, and reduce inflammation. My favorites are their red light light bulbs because they can be used to create a melatonin-friendly environment in your bedroom by shining only red and not blue or green light waves that will reduce your sleep quality. After starting to use these red light light bulbs, I find it much easier to fall asleep and feel less awake before bed. To celebrate their rebrand, Bond Charge has a 25% off rebrand sale happening right now until the end of June 2022. Go to bondcharge.com forward slash seamlund and use the coupon code BONDCHARGE to save 25%. Donald, welcome back to the show. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation for the second time. Yeah, yeah like the first time we talked, it was like... Um more than a year ago and uh, then we just uh, covered your, your books about stoicism um, how to think like a roman emperor and stoicism and the art of happiness and i recommend people to definitely check it out uh, but um, at the end of that podcast you also said that you were working on like a graphic novel yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah we today we're gonna just focus more on uh, that and uh, we're gonna kind of cover those uh, topics so uh, maybe maybe let's you know talk about um why would you what got you uh, into like writing a gra- graphic novel and what made you want to do it well i've just finished it actually I, it's it, there's a little bit of an odd story to it so maybe it's interesting just as a kind of aside to to some of you listeners how publishing can work or opportunities can work in life um so i've written several prose books i've never written a graphic novel or a comic before and uh, a guy contacted me few years ago, a Portuguese illustrator, and he'd done a graphic novel about a play by Aristophanes, a Greek play called The Assembly Women. And he said, would you be interested in having some illustrations done about Stoic philosophy? And I I didn't really think about it for a while. I couldn't come up with any good ideas. And then six months later, it just, I was probably lying in my bed late at night, just suddenly popped into my head. I thought, hey, I could get that guy to do some web comics for me. His name is Zenuno Fraga. And so we got him to do some three little web comics about Marcus Aurelius, um, bits from the meditations of Marcus Aurelius and lessons from Stoic philosophy, but centered around three of Aesop's fables. Marcus Aurelius quotes one of Aesop's fables in the meditations. So we thought that might work quite well because there are animals in the fables. So they look quite, it's quite visual and it's like a short little story. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't think much more of it, but I was speaking at a conference in London about Stoic philosophy. And I printed three of the panels out and made them into gicle, like high quality printings um, to hang on your wall. And I put them out 
And a guy came up to me and he was a, a senior editor for a publisher. And he said, are these yours? Like, would you be interested in doing a graphic novel? So it's a kind of interesting story because by complete chance, just by putting the artwork out there at a conference where there were some people who worked in publishing, I'd never, that wasn't my reason for doing it. I hadn't thought about that. Guy stumbled across it and said, would you like to do a graphic novel? So I, I stumbled into doing it by chance, really. Nice. And um, I hadn't read many graphic novels, but when I was a teenager, I read a British comic called 2000 AD religiously. Like, and that all kind of flooded back to me. And I, I immersed myself in the world of graphic novels. And there are a surprising number of books about how to write graphic novels. So I did a lot of research. And mm. I watched so many Sword and Sandals movies, like <laughs> Gladiator and all, every other one that I could think of, old movies and TV series and studied the shots, the angles and stuff. And that was how I went about doing it. And now we've just finished it. It's probably about two and a half years we've been working on it. Mm. And uh, I kind of feel like I, I had a crash course in how to do comics. Nice. <laughs> well, yeah, that's uh, fortunate that you stumbled upon that. And uh, with the graphic yeah. novels, it's very like interesting because, you know, uh, first of all, they're not the, like the most popular m medium for uh, information, especially for like uh, stoicism or philosophy. <laughs> like, I don't know any other like stoic uh, comic books or graphic no novels that uh, can try to convey the lessons of stoicism or even like the history of because the graphic novel is not only like the philosophy, but also history. And uh, yeah, yeah have a challenge. And until now, it's the future, maybe. <laughs> Although Ryan Holiday um, did quite recently, I don't know if it's a graphic novel, but maybe a more like an illustrated uh, mm. children's book. Um, mm. Where ours actually is is quite. Sometimes people initially, when you say you're doing a comic or a graphic novel, they kind of assume it's uh, aimed for for kids or for teens or whatever. Ours is actually quite mature. Um, because we try to make it kind of as historically accurate as we could. So there's some violence and torture and some pretty heavy stuff about the plague and death and things like that. So maybe for late teens it would be. It's a bit PG, basically. Right. And uh, it's I didn't even think about it until I started writing it. And then uh, I realized it's writing a, a graphic novel, scripting it, it's very, very similar to writing a script for a movie or designing a storyboard for a movie. Um, right down to the way that you describe the angle of the shots and things like that. Mm. It's kind of a similar process. So that's probably where I watched lots of movies and we made it. Not all graphic novels are like this. I mean, you can have a graphic novel where you've got a little stick man in it or something if you want. It could be kind of abstract. But as we try to make it more cinematic, it, kind of a bit like Gladiator or something like that. It's like Gladiator, but with philosophy. Nice. <laughs> if you can imagine that. There's a lot of action in Marcus Aurelius' story. As you, you're kind of implying, there's a lot of history. Um, there's a plague, there's wars, there's a lot of intrigue, there's some big characters in it. Hadrian's quite a big character, the Emperor Hadrian mm. in Marcus Aurelius's life. So it, yeah. I, I, not until I started really working on it, I thought, well, this is a better idea than I realized at first. Mm. Like, you know, I thought it was quite a good idea and I thought, this makes perfect sense. It would be like a movie. And then as I, I wrote it, it started to feel more and more like almost a little bit like it was a prequel to Gladiator, actually, because it kind of ends um, round about where the movie Gladiator begins. Although movie Gladiator is more fictionalized. But yeah. there's no, and there's no, not very much philosophy and hardly any philosophy in it. Uh, maybe like one or two kind of fleeting references. 
But I understand Russell Crowe was a big fan of the meditations of Marx Aurelius, and he wanted the director to put more philosophy in, in the movie. So it's a pity. It could have, we could have had right. a version of Gladiator that had a bit more stoicism in it. Imagine how awesome that would have been. <laughs> yeah, that would have been awesome, yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, like you, you were, you're right in the sense that, you know, history is very gruesome and uh, can be very bloody and stuff like that. So it's, uh, <laughs> you, if you want to be historically yeah. accurate, then you have to, yeah, make it pretty uh, PG for sure. Uh, but uh, let's start with maybe like, yeah, the uh, setting of the uh, entire uh, novel and like, you know, Marcus Aurelius, maybe, maybe people don't know uh, who he is, like maybe just explain yeah. as well the back backstory of who he is. Well, if you, I should mention that we've talked about Gladiator. He's played by Richard Harris in the first act of that movie. So it's a while ago, it's 2000 that came out. So it's a couple of decades ago. But people might kind of vaguely remember seeing him at the start of the movie. And Marcus Aurelius is famous because emperor. he's, yeah. yeah, he's the old emperor at the beginning. He was a Roman emperor. And he, there are good emperors and bad emperors like anything else in life. And Marcus Aurelius, by historians, has always been considered one of the better emperors one of the good emperors and he commanded the Roman Empire more or less at the height of its power. Um, he was the adopted grandson of Hadrian and there was an emperor between them called Antoninus Pius and he was the father of a bad emperor. His son Commodus went on to become a bit like Nero, one of the kind of crazy sort of corrupt emperors allegedly. And Marcus is famous today because he wrote a, a book that's like a collection of private notes almost like a journal um, about his practice of Stoic philosophy. So not philosophical theorizing, but him actually applying the philosophy to his anger, to his desires, to his frustration with life at court and the wars that he's fighting. And the, the, the scene in which he writes, it's quite dramatic. He, he's writing this every day to himself. The original Greek manuscript, we call it the Meditations, but the original title was To Himself. And uh, the first English translation was called something like Meditations to Himself. And then it got kind of um, abbreviated to Meditations, which is what we call it today. But he was writing notes to himself, giving himself advice, almost like it's an interesting concept, almost like being a mentor or a coach to himself, like he's taking a step back and observing himself from the outside. And um, he was writing it. Um, he tells us in passing, he says, I'm writing this at Carnuntum, which is uh, one of the main Roman military uh, bases on the Danube um, in modern day Austria. Um, and later he's writing it near uh, Budapest, uh, at a place called Aquincum. He says it's a, he's across the, uh, the Danube by the river Gran, so near this another major Roman legionary base. So he's in the middle of a huge war. The Romans called it the War of Many Nations, um, but we call it the Marcomannic War um, because he was fighting against a Germanic tribe called the Marcomanni and a whole bunch of other tribes along the Danube frontier. And it was also in the middle of a plague named after him. It's called the Antonine Plague. His dynastic name, his cognomen was Antoninus. So the Antonine Plague is actually named after him. And it was believed to be a variant of smallpox. So it's very timely because we're in the middle of a pandemic now. The meditations, in a sense, is this guy coping with the stress and the problems that he's facing um, in part in, uh, in the middle of a pandemic. 
um, and also as the ruler, like the commander in chief of the military, like uh, the head of state. Um, and you know, not only is he in the middle of the pandemic, he's in the middle of this huge military crisis as well. So he was under a lot of pressure. And that's the scene in which he's writing. And the meditations went on to become one of the most famous and influential spiritual or self-help classics of all time. It's, it's a very widely read book today. Hmm. Yeah, that's, a, <laughs> that's so true that um, he's... Um... He was yeah, yeah, like in the middle of this almost like action movie itself, <laughs> like living oh, yeah. in a crazy, crazy world, um, being the emperor and uh, having a plague and having these wars and uh, those kind of things and having other personal life issues, etc., etc. So uh, yeah, like uh, there's like his story is actually more interesting than like the gladiator story or <laughs> or someone else. Yeah, it, some of the things that the Roman historians tell us are all are, are really fascinating and, and incredibly dramatic and quirky little historical details. <clears throat> One of the historians, Cassius Dio, was a Roman senator under Commodus, and uh, he was, how old was he? He was like 20 or something when Marcus Aurelius died, but he's one of our main sources for Roman history. We have several uh, three main histories of Marcus Aurelius' reign and then lots of other little bits of evidence, inscriptions and coins and things like that. But uh, Cassius Dio says he felt sorry for Marcus Aurelius because he said he wasn't one of the most successful emperors, um, but he thought he was one of the best emperors because as soon as he took the throne, um, there were the, the river Tiber flooded, there was a famine, there were earthquakes, the Parthians invaded in the east of the... And everything just kind of went wrong. He said he spent most of his reign in warfare, like defending Rome against multiple invasions, and uh, so Cassius Dio says he wasn't, in a sense, most successful because he had a really hard time of it. But under that immense pressure, like, he showed himself to be one of the wisest and most virtuous emperors. Mm. Um, Cassius Dio also, the cool thing from the perspective of writing a movie or a graphic novel is the Roman historians are super nerdy, like geekish themselves about history. Cassius Dio, at one point, he's talking about Marx and Aurelius's life and he can't help himself but he kind of breaks off into a little digression describing how the Roman marines uh, and engineers would build a pontoon bridge using barges and deploy it really quickly. They trained to deploy it very rapidly so they could make a kind of instant bridge and then charge across the Danube to catch the enemy by surprise. So there's really cool things like that that he mentions. You can see he's kind of getting excited like going, look at this amazing thing that we got. Like no other nation has the like technology to do this. Like mm -hmm. the enemy don't know what hit them. Like because we kind of figured out with our engineers how to make these bridges instantly. There's another famous scene. Just a, a, a little bit of trivia for you as we move some movie trivia. There was a scene that was meant to be in Gladiator that they didn't use. That comes from Cassius Dio. And again, it's like this kind of nerdy thing that historians read and they think, wow, that's amazing. And the way he describes it, you can tell even the Roman historian. Uh, thinks this is cinematic, it's cool. He says the Romans fought this uh, ancient tribe called the Sarmatians. Um, and uh, he says they fought them on the Danube. And then he says, and by that, I don't mean we fought them in boats, but we fought them on the frozen surface of the river. And then he goes on to detail the tactics that the Romans had to develop to defend themselves against a cavalry charge uh, of Sarmatian lancers on the ice. Um, and so people read that and thought, that would look amazing in a movie, right? But they didn't put it in Gladiator, but the scriptwriter hung on to the idea and recycled it 
he kind of rehashed it for another Sword and Sandals movie called King Arthur that mm. came out uh, a few years later. He modified it a lot, but they fight in a frozen lake in that movie. Wow. So there's stuff in these histories that you it's just kind of been sitting there waiting for someone to go, that would look awesome in a movie. And there's loads of other little details like that. It's almost like a treasure house of uh, cool historical concepts and images. Often things that, that would surprise modern day readers that they don't realize about ancient history. But what we try to do in the graphic novel was to kind of find a way, it's like we've got these two sources, right? We have the histories that tell us about Marx or really sees outward behavior as emperor. Mm-hmm. And then in parallel to that, we have the meditations, which is like his diary and record of his innermost thoughts, his soul searching, his spiritual and emotional uh, journey. It's like a therapy he's doing. And so the challenge is to take this outer story and the inner story and kind of weave them together, yeah. like, which is you know hard, like, but we tried to do it. The trick yeah. I tried to use was... The, the meditations is written in an odd way, whereby it's kind of surprisingly abstract. Like he, um, for instance, the most famous passage in it is the beginning of book two. And you, you've probably heard this. He says, um, it's all over the internet. He says, every morning when you're awake and tell yourself that you will meet with people who are treacherous and meddling and envious. And he goes on to tell himself how to prepare in advance uh, for dealing with people and to expect to encounter people that are problematic, but to be prepared for it. But he doesn't say who they are, right? He doesn't say, you know, that general that you don't like, or you know, your mother in law, or whatever. Like it's in abstract terms. He doesn't name any names, or which is kind of odd in a way for a personal uh, journal. And, and actually, we, we believe it really wasn't intended for publication. But there are a few fleeting references to historical details in it. Or sometimes he'll name things that might have been in his environment. So, for instance, at one point he says, you shouldn't get angry with uh, people who lie or who are treacherous. You should view it as something as inevitable as the sound of horses neighing. Mm. Now, at Carnuntum, there would have been hundreds, thousands of Roman cavalry. Like, so he would have been surrounded by horses and the sound of the horses neighing and, uh, and so on was probably quite loud and kind of disturbing if you're an aged emperor trying to write your notes by candlelight or whatever. So, you know, we can kind of, if we think really deeply about it, we can kind of take some of the things that he says and imagine the context in which he was writing them and the things to which he was referring. He talks about being attached to material possessions, being as pointless is becoming attached to the little birds that nest by the side of the river. As soon as you've seen them and started to gaze at them, suddenly they flutter off and they're gone forever in the distance. But mm. there are lots of little birds like that along in the hedges along the, the banks of the, the Danube at Carnuntum. So we can kind of start to, if we try hard, take some of the things he says and visualize them in the actual environment he was in. We can take passages like 2.1 where he says prepare to deal with people who are treacherous and try and imagine who might he have had in mind in his life when he was doing that to, to make it, to take it and make it unabstract, like to think he must have had individuals in mind when he was writing that and who are the kind of likely candidates? Well, he was involved in a civil war. So one of his friends betrayed him on a massive scale. Like, and it must have been guys like that potentially that he was thinking of when he was writing these comments. So by doing that, we can kind of try to weave the philosophy and psychology in with the the history of his reign nice yeah i think that yeah like the biggest let's say barrier for uh the meditations book at least in my opinion would have been yeah that the it's very it's very hard to read 
um, where it's like most people most people don't find it easy to read sort of said like they don't have like the patience to like it, because it's also like a little bit of like uh, like poetry style uh-huh. and uh, it's uh, you know a lot of these philosophical ideas etc etc so it doesn't it, it's you know it's very popular it's one of the most popular books of all time and a lot of you know uh, big people uh, value it a lot but it's just like the mainstream uh, would never pick it up because of it's like very very kind of hard whereas with a graphic novel you can uh, have like a, this cool story and um, and uh, you can you can learn about Marcus Aurelius as a person as well uh, but through the story which is like more attractive and more like mainstream and more like this you yeah. know Hollywood style sort of say like it's uh, much more appealable for people to pick up and then you can also like weave in a lot of these uh, you know philosophical ideas into there we try to think I'll tell you another way that we we try to do this actually the um I thought long and hard about how we could bring philosophy into the story and not make it seem like uh, like an exposition dump, you know, make it seem like it was woven in more seamlessly. And one of the things that strikes me about the meditations, it's not obvious at first to many readers, I think, is that Marcus admits in that book that he has a problem coping with his anger. And I think if you study the book very, very closely, um, you can see the managing anger is a kind of recurring theme in it. And in fact, the opening sentence of it says that he admires his grandfather Um, his paternal grandfather because he's free from anger and then he implies something like that in the next sentence about his own father and then you know there's another passage where he goes into great detail listing 10 different strategies that he uses to cope with anger so there are many topics it covers but anger seems to be one of the major ones now anger is overcoming an emotional problem is a is a good uh, hook for a story right it kind of makes sense you want your main character not to be perfect like, but it's good if they've got some sort of inner struggle that they're, they're coping with. So he hands it to us in a place. I have this problem with anger. Like, and the meditations is his attempt to, to try and deal with it. Mm. And he tells us the techniques that he uses, which are very similar to modern techniques that we use in psychotherapy and, and cognitive therapy. And also conveniently for a graphic novel, anger is, uh, uh, I, I would say, in a sense, the, the most visual emotion um because it's one of in a sense one of the most interpersonal emotions you get angry with other people you yell at them and things like that it can lead to violence so anger is quite a good emotion to try and portray in a a graphic novel it lends itself to action and drama quite well so we made that one of the themes um how as a young guy he had uh, some difficulty coping with anger he was surrounded by other violent and angry people like, and then over the course of his life, he tried to kind of how, you know, engaged in constant warfare, like uh, it was difficult for him uh, not to view his enemies with hatred, if you like, and anger. But he tried to rise above that. And not only was it hard when he's fighting these guys every day and they're betraying him, um, tricking him, deceiving him, um, uh, but also the... To complicate it further, he had enemies within Rome. There was a civil war against him. Mm. And, you know, if we look very closely at the histories, they don't really tell us explicitly, but I think it's clear if we study the evidence that part of the reason for the civil war was that his enemies didn't think that he was adopting a kind of hawkish, aggressive enough military policy. They thought he was putting too much emphasis on diplomacy negotiation and they they would have rather pursued more like a kind of scotched earth policy against the enemy whereas marcus kind of wanted to stabilize the region in order to secure longer term peace 
Um, so there was a division in, in uh, the Roman hierarchy about the best way to, to handle the war. Um, and people wanted him to be more angry. And actually, it, one of the criticisms that they seem to have made of him was revolves around the definition, interestingly, of what it means to be a man, of manliness. <laughs> so they seem to have said, this guy's a, one of the insults they used against him, one of his generals, the guy that rebelled against him, allegedly said he's a philosophical old woman. <laughs> right um and in the meditations marcus talks about the concept of manliness and he says listen these guys talk as if manliness is just about kind of aggression and violence and stuff like that but he says my father was the most manly guy i knew um and he like he was the opposite like he he was free from anger uh and you know his strength consisted in his ability to show kindness and compassion and patience towards other people and so marcus kind of challenges this idea and he's paradoxically for me i think true strength of character true manliness like in true true courage consists in uh, the ability to master your anger and aggression um which is you know I'd, certainly it's an interesting you know idea and it's very relevant today i think marcus would have had a lot to say about the internet i think mm. and trolling and flaming, you know, and all the kind of hatred and, uh, you know, division that we see in discussion forums and stuff online today. For sure. What would, what would he say, like, uh, about this internet rage culture or... Uh... <laughs> I think, you know, I, he would have said many, many things about it. Um, the Stoics said that anger is temporary madness. And many of the things they say are kind of um, anticipate modern cognitive psychology research right so what you see on the internet is you could say you see a lot of anger on the internet i don't know if you've noticed this but you also see quite a lot of what you could call stupidity on the internet like and the two things go hand in hand and uh, let me explain why like we know there's a, a large body of research that shows that when people get really angry they exhibit measurable cognitive biases um so literally you become worse at thinking you become you become poorer at reasoning and problem solving where the angrier you get if, for instance people who are really angry are known to underestimate risk why and so you know that's quite dangerous um because they're more likely to put themselves and other people at risk um my favorite example of that is muhammad ali fighting george foreman in the rumble in the jungle so muhammad ali realized it as a boxer foreman's greatest weakness was that he couldn't control his temper Like, and Ali taunted him and provoked him so that he would exhaust himself in the first few rounds. So George Foreman underestimated the risk like, of lashing out at Ali. It's a good example of it. Like He did something stupid like because Ali was able to make him angry. And so we, we do stupid things. It's temporary madness when we get angry because it impairs our judgment. And the Stoics were really clear about that. So they would say, it's not just a problem with feelings. It's also a problem with thinking when we allow anger to control our behavior. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's because, yeah, you're kind of looking at it from a very, um, like a primitive uh, brain side. Like you're, you're kind of, the anger is governed by, you know, the reptilian brain or the, uh, the amygdala. Uh, and uh, or the basal ganglia, and then then you're kind of just you know following your instincts, <laughs> like the very initial urges without really over without thinking it through, and uh, just uh, kind of doing what you what you think is right in the moment. But when you're 
you know after the fact when you if analyze it then uh, it will become completely different yeah I, I shall, i'll give you another little example that's kind of cute and it fits into what i said earlier about taking stuff that marcus says and if we really think about it we can visualize we can imagine him saying it in context so at one point he says people assume that a roman legionary um breaking formation out of fear to run from battle that would be a bad thing it's a sign of weakness but he says it's equally a sign of weakness for a legionary to break formation and rush at the enemy out of anger and rage because it places himself and also the men on either side of him at greater risk if he breaks a formation mm. uh, if he breaks ranks and charges at the enemy it's a lack of discipline and any roman general would have said you know they would have potentially punished a legionary for doing that who said you, you know you're trying to be courageous or but you're you're endangering like the men beside you by doing that like um and so marcus that's a good example of marcus saying look anger we kind of think of it as a strong emotion in some ways but he says it's dangerous like it, it places you and other people at risk it's actually not a, a sign of strength it leads to weakness and vulnerability if you're not careful and we, it's nice because we can imagine him actually saying that as he observes this happening on the battlefield, for instance, we can relate it uh, to the, the environment in which he's in, in a movie yeah. or a graphic novel or something. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, because, yeah, like, you know, you are doing things out of anger, then you're yeah, more than likely to yeah, do something stupid <laughs> that you regret later and put yourself in danger. I mean, the, the thing that made the Romans so effective as a military, they viewed themselves as uh, professional soldiers and their enemies often as just kind of like, they, the Romans thought of them as just groups, almost not an army, but just as groups of bandits. And they said, the difference is we have discipline and engineering. Like, so we have training and discipline and stuff, uh, and that allows us uh, to you know, hold formation and to fight more effectively. Um, and they thought that was a big advantage, but required like, uh, you know, fighting in a self-disciplined and rational manner like, and uh, mastering emotions. Whereas the Romans thought the enemy just kind of rushed at people like willy-nilly and that was kind of, that was their biggest weakness. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What what else, you know, um, what are some other like main of these uh, ideas of Marcus Aurelius that especially can be like applicable in the modern day? What could be useful today? Um, well, let's start with an easy one, right? Everyone's favorite one is this thing called the view from above that we find in Stoicism. And I like it because it's also relevant to modern psychology. So we also know that when, um, so your attention uh, is more complex than people normally assume. Psychologists are very interested in how we allocate attention. So you can think about several things at once, right? Um, so you could be driving a car and you could be listening to the radio and you could be talking to your kids that are in the back and you could be thinking about what you're going to have for dinner later, you know, or as I like to put it, we can walk and chew gum, we can kind of multitask and stuff, except when we're under stress mm. and then we become worse at multitasking and our attention becomes narrowed in scope. We're able to think about fewer things at once and it also becomes less under voluntary control. Our attention gets hijacked more by possible signs of threat in our environment. So the Stoics knew that two and a half thousand years ago, or 2,300 years ago when Stoicism began, um, they knew that uh, when we narrow our attention, when we become very angry, that's one of the reasons that our thinking becomes biased and distorted. And they therefore trained themselves to expand 
the scope of their attention, spatially and chronologically, also in terms of the breadth of somebody's character. Like, the, you know, so somebody insults us. If I'm really angry, I might just focus on one thing that someone just said and how insulting that is, like put, as if I'm putting it under a magnifying glass. But in doing that, the, it, there's other things I'm ignoring. So I might be forgetting that that person's, you know, just helped an old lady across the street or, you know, maybe I've known them for years and they've always been really good to me in the past or something like that. So we, when we get angry, we tend to be selective in our thinking. Um, we take things out of context. Or you could also say we're committing a kind of lie of omission. That's why in court, um, in, in some countries, in the UK, for example, you swear an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. The whole truth. Like, because to tell a partial truth is a kind of lie. Like, you might say something that technically is true, but leaves out lots of relevant information that changed the significance of what you're saying. And that's the type of lie that people tell themselves when they're angry or depressed or whatever. For example, someone who's clinically depressed, say they write a book or make a movie or perform a play or whatever, and they get reviews. They make up, let's say they get 100 reviews and they're all kind of like good or they're so-so, but there's one bad review. Someone with a clinical depression would have a, a negative bias so that they would mainly notice the one bad review. That would be the main one that they spend time ruminating about. And it's the one that they're most likely to remember afterwards and they'll forget all of the other ones. Whereas if you're in a healthier, better place, you would see the bigger picture you would think I did get one bad review, but in context of 99 good reviews, it, it becomes less upsetting, it's less significant. So the Stoics knew that we are at risk of this kind of selective thinking, and they trained themselves by visualizing the broader perspective, and in many ways expanding their horizons psychologically. One way of doing that was to picture things from high above. I only noticed this recently, um, but there's a famous passage in Marcus Aurelius where he says, um, the mind free from violent passions is like an impenetrable citadel. And then he goes on to describe um, being in a kind of high up citadel and looking down on events below. And I knew that in another passage, he describes the same thing, the view from above. And he says, imagine looking down at people buying and selling things in the courtroom and the marketplaces. And I knew that in Greek, he says, agorai. Like the word for the ancient Agora, the marketplace of Athens, for example. In the passage, which is quite famous, where he says, imagine yourself in a high citadel, I, I kind of wondered for a while, what's the word for citadel that he uses in Greek? Like, I, I couldn't quite figure out what it would be. And I looked at the, the Greek uh, manuscript and I realized the word he uses is Acropolis. And I thought that's intriguing because any Athenian philosopher, the, there are many uh, Acropolises uh, in the ancient world. It's just a fortified building on top of a hill. Uh, literally, Acropolis means high up part of the city. Um, but uh, the most famous Acropolis by far in the ancient world and today is the one in Athens, which looks down on the Agora below. So the view from above is like the view someone would have in this hill, um, which where the temple of Athena was looking down on all the craziness that happens in the city center below like people getting sued or sentenced to death. That's where Socrates was put on trial and executed. But mm. Marcus says, when we look at things from high above, we see them in a broader context and we still see the reality of what's happening, but it seems 
less overwhelming to us when we picture it in that way. Now, he mentions you can do the same thing chronologically as well as spatially. And uh, I'll give you a really simple technique that we use. I think this is one of the simplest techniques in cognitive therapy, right? That maybe worth mentioning in a podcast is something people easily can take away. So you can expand your perspective chronologically. When people worry about things, one of the curious things about it is if you were to worry about something that might happen in the future, like losing your job, right? Or your relationship breaking up or something like that, you have to choose a segment in time to focus on like a little movie clip with the beginning, middle and end. And people don't think about the arbitrariness of that. Like, why would you choose that segment and not make it go on for longer, for example? Psychologists are very interested in that. So when people worry, they usually stop at the worst part of the sequence of events and they don't kind of continue to roll the movie further. Um, So in therapy, we just say to people, suppose that your wife did leave you, what would probably happen next? And then what would probably happen next? And then what would probably happen next? So we just nudge them to keep moving their chronological perspective forward. And when people do that, it does two things. It forces them to realize that eventually they'll get over the catastrophe and things will start to improve, although it might take a while, eventually they will. And also it forces them to start thinking about how they might cope, to practice and creatively think about potential coping behavior. They might say, well, I guess I would, go on a dating app or I guess I'd go and start socializing with people again I guess eventually I'd meet someone I guess I'd probably start another relationship but it would take a while but I guess eventually and then you can say well imagine a couple of years from now looking back on like that event how would you feel about it five years from now and they might say well I guess it still would seem like a bad thing but not as bad because I would have moved on by then like, so we can encourage people to play around with their chronological perspective to widen the scope of it so they can still view events realistically but not feel as overwhelmed by them. The Stoics knew that 2,300 years ago. By the way, Sigmund Freud dominated modern psychotherapy for nearly 100 years. He didn't mm-hmm. know any of this stuff. <laughs> so it's mind-boggling. It's really, I can't emphasize enough how weird it is that 2,000 years ago, the Stoics knew a lot of this stuff. And then cognitive therapists kind of rediscovered it only in the past 50 years or so. Yeah. And they thought, geez, man, it kind of turns out that the Stoics were right. And like, so how come these psychotherapists and psychiatrists got some of them like um, were highly lauded, you know, but yet completely failed to figure out really simple psychological insights Mm. that Greek philosophers knew um you know like we we let all that we lost all that wisdom like and had to rediscover it through science Mm, yeah 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 like um in some ways like people in the past were like more wise they may have had like less information and less uh data but they were in many ways more wise or more like uh at least like more connected to their um i don't know like their traditions or uh, their ancestors that they got the information or the wisdom from their ancestors, uh, which was like actually developed over the much over the course of, you know, much, much longer time than uh, the yeah. science nowadays, um, which, which, isn't, <laughs> which doesn't mean that science is bad or uh, something or the information is bad. Uh, it's just yeah, like the kind of difference between different, different degrees of uh, knowing different degrees of knowledge. I think so. There are pros and cons to different environments. I think there are many advantages, for example, to the internet and the information age. There are also disadvantages to it as well. We're overloaded and bombarded with information and it distorts our thinking. It makes us more yeah. easily manipulated. You can see that. 
I think in the ancient world, people had a lot more time on their hands, generally. Like, they had more time just to sit and kind of chew things over, like, and kind of, like, patiently process their emotions. I would say psychologically, one of the difficulties today is because we, we crave stimulation and entertainment, and we got it. We got what we wished for. Like, we got, like, an infinite supply of stim mental stimulation. We can go on YouTube all day long and watch videos of kittens or whatever it is that floats your boat these days. But in the ancient world, people were bored a lot of the time. Like, you know, they worked, but they had a lot of time where they were just sitting around watching the, like, the sunrise. And, you know, I remember when I was a young guy before we had the internet, you know, like we had a lot of time where we were just like sitting around and kind of like, you know, waiting, like reflecting on things. We weren't bombarded with uh, this amount of stimulation, but it meant that we had, meant the downside was that as a kid, I was bored more often, but the positive side was it meant we had more time for emotional processing. Like mm -hmm. if something upset you, like you had more opportunity to digest it properly. Whereas now I think we have constant emotional indigestion in a way. We don't give ourselves a chance. We, people, when they're upset about something, distract themselves from it by going on the internet. Like, but that stops them from being able to process the emotions naturally. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's right. Because yeah, like the uh, being constantly stimulated and distracted prevents you from actually, you know, going deep in within. So you're always like you're always yeah. on the outside world, uh, focusing on something on the outside to distract yourself. Whereas if you have the time for the stillness and uh, for yourself, then you have the yeah, the up. Then you're kind of forced to go inward to, uh, and then you will also be forced to you know, face your own um, inner thoughts and uh, narrow conversations and those kind of things, which uh, will develop like more, um, you know, uh, self-control self and uh, more kinds of uh, willpower or that kind of thing. Uh, because, yeah, a lot of people are also afraid of just, you know, talking to themselves or listening to what their like subconscious yeah. mind that kind of comes up with. Well, it's, I would say like um, <clears throat> in all of the research, and there's a, there's a huge amount of research in psychology and, and psychotherapy and psychopathology. To me, one of the most robustly established findings, <clears throat> which we've known for about at least half a century now, is um, what we call exposure, the basis of what we call exposure therapy in modern psychotherapy. Um, and that's the anxiety, um, simple forms of anxiety like phobias naturally wear off over time. 90% of the time or more um, under the right conditions and mainly through repeated and prolonged exposure to the thing that we're phobic about. So if someone has a cat phobia and you put them in a room with some cats, their heart rate will shoot up, like it will nearly double as if they're running really hard, right? And it'll do that within less than five seconds. Like it's pretty quick, but then what happens? Well, they're gonna really want to run out of the room, but if they don't run out of the room, like the heart rate will gradually go down, take a while, it's gonna take maybe 10, 50, it may even take half an hour or more, but the heart rate's gradually gonna go back down towards its normal resting level. Next day, you put them in a room with cats, the heart rate will go back up, but not as high as it did before, and it'll reduce more quickly. Day three, put them in a room with cats, the heart rate's gonna go up, but maybe only half as much as it did the first time, it's gonna reduce a lot more quickly. And eventually through doing that, you'll extinguish the anxiety completely. And the interesting thing about things like phobic anxiety is some problems have a high relapse rate, like alcoholism, addictions and stuff have high relapse rates, but phobias don't. Like usually once you overcome a phobia, it's gone for good pretty much, unless something happens to, uh, to reinstate it. 
And if you think about it, that would be the way it would have to work in animals. We know this is, we call this emotional habituation. It works even in, in very simple life forms. It would have to, because uh, if, if you were a little, suppose you for a minute that you were a little furry animal, right? Mm-hmm. And you're, uh, you're, you're living in the, an ancient forest and you're going to the place where you know you can get the best nuts in the forest. You go there every day, but one day a tree falls down and it scares the living daylights out of you, right? It's a very loud noise. You run away, right? Next day you come back, now you've got a phobia for that part of the forest. You're anxious. You got a big fright there yesterday, but you really want the nuts. Like, so you go back and maybe you kind of peek out from behind a bush. I bet you run away because it's still kind of scary. And then the next day you go back and nothing bad happens. And then the next day you go back and nothing bad happens. So eventually your little furry animal's anxiety is going to wear off and it's going to go back to eating the nuts in peace every day. Well, if the anxiety didn't wear off, that would be very maladaptive for that species. Like, if it gets a fright once, does that mean it's permanently going to run away from something, even if there's no danger there? Like, anxiety has to wear off naturally for us to adapt to our environment if we discover that it's safe and there's no real threat there. But the thing that prevents it from happening is we have an urge to avoid um, unpleasant feelings. And now, because it's easy to distract ourselves, we no longer sit with anxiety and endure it like we would have in the past. And we know this is one of the simplest, most powerful and most reliable psychological mechanisms. And yet nowadays, you know, because we have so much access to distraction, uh, people prevent themselves from confronting the things that make them anxious in a patient, repeated and controlled manner. They just go off and do something else instead so they don't have to think about it. Um, But that means that they'll never get over their anxiety. Um, whereas in the past, you know, like people had less distraction, like they would sit with their feelings for longer until feelings wear, feelings like that typically wear off naturally under normal conditions, but not, not in the age of the internet. Right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you, you can apply the same uh, principle to just, let's say being productive or uh, trying to work or, uh, trying to focus. It's like uh, it's only uncomfortable for the first like five minutes, and after that, yeah. it becomes um, more bearable, and you get used to it. Well, here's an analogy that I know that you'll relate to, right? Because um, are you a cold showers guy or a cold baths type of guy? Like you've, probably, you know, there's a lot of people that are into fitness these days that are into that kind of thing. Right. right. If you get in a hot bath or a cold bath, it's uncomfortable at first, but your body acclimatizes to it after like you know twenty seconds yeah. or something. You get used to it, and you don't really notice it as much. And it's the same if you're uh, a cat phobic like, or whatever, you know, you're anxious at first, but the anxiety wears off. Just like your body naturally gets used to the cold temperature and the, the, the icy water, or the cold water, like you start to get used to it. It's a shock at first, but then if you stay there, like you get used to it. If you jump out of the water, go, oh, it's really cold, and then you get back in it again, then you jump out again, you get back in it again, you're going to just permanently maintain your level of discomfort. You never going to give yourself an opportunity just to acclimatize and get used to it we need to be patient with discomfort like in order to go over it i i think yeah yeah that's true <laughs> it's just the culture today is just like this instant gratification and uh discomfort is something to be avoided and that uh, you, you want to be comfortable all the time and you want to just yeah avoid all the uh, bad things in life etc but there's a lot of yeah, like wisdom to be learned from the discomfort and uh, doing the things that you don't want to do. But for like an example of Marcus Aurelius, like <laughs> he had like a super uncomfortable life actually. Like he was the emperor, 
but he still had you know like all these things to do and uh, all these you know wars and plagues and uh, people wanted to kill him probably and uh, that kind of thing all the time. He didn't like Austria, like well he didn't like he didn't like the climate, like because he struggled with it. He had uh, a bunch of chronic health conditions. And he says um, one of the things a Roman emperor had to do, like many leaders in the ancient world, was it, it was really much more important that they could give speeches. And the way that you wrote the speeches, um, you said his writing was like poetry. Like he studied rhetoric, uh, speech writing uh, with the, the leading experts in the world in Greek and Latin for decades. Like so he was highly, highly trained. Like actually, I would say to such a level that some of the things that he's doing are kind of beyond, a little bit beyond the comprehension of many modern readers, like the, the subtle things that, that he's uh, he's saying and implying that would have affected a Roman audience kind of go over our heads a little bit. So he's mm. he's an, he's like a real like high level like expert at the use of uh, the use of language. But being an orator meant also using your voice. He had to stand and speak to, uh, you know, like hundreds, like maybe thousands of legionaries assembled before him on a parade ground, like without a microphone. Like, and so he had to really project his voice. He says he found that difficult in the winter in Austria, like because the cold air made it hard for him to use his voice. And he had problems sleeping and stuff like that. He guess his chronic uh, stomach pains. He maybe had stomach ulcer or something like that. Mm. Um, so in the ancient world, in some ways, you know, when people got sick, sometimes they just had to live with it because they didn't necessarily, yeah. uh, you know, have the medical knowledge to be able to figure out a, a cure. And uh, often the cures that they remedies that they had potentially just made people worse in some cases. Maybe there was some primitive kind of folk wisdom, but they also had some bad ideas about medicine like, and did some things that, that might actually be, be harmful. So, you know, a lot of ancient uh, people in the ancient world uh, struggled with their health. Um, and so Marcus had this terrible discomfort that he had to live with. Um, but he went and spent a lot of time on the northern frontier anyway, in military camps. And his son Commodus hated it. And as soon as Marcus died, the first thing Commodus did was go back to Rome, like to the high life, to the luxury like because he didn't like staying in the military camps in the, in, uh, in the northern frontier like he wanted more comfort so he he's a good example Commodus would be a good example of somebody who immediately fled the slightest discomfort like in order to get back to the kind of luxury and the diversions and the entertainment uh of the uh, of the city hmm. right right yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah like the overall kind of character was yeah that the Marcus was like trying to be this virtuous person and um, have integrity and uh, be yeah, like honorable. And that's why he was called one of the five uh, good emperors. He was like on a sort of quintessential self-improvement journey throughout his entire life. From 12 years old, we're told, like he started. And you might say that seems odd, like because many Romans couldn't give two hoots about that kind of stuff. Um, others were interested in it. It went through like today, there's kind of trends, like sometimes philosophy and self-improvement in the ancient world became kind of trendy and popular. Then other times people kind of lost interest in it. But uh, I think one of the reasons that Marcus got interested in it, there are several, one of them is his father died when he was about three or four years old. And I, I think it seems obvious that he then attached himself to several father figures like 
in his teens, like he was kind of looking for a guide in life, a role model and somebody to look up for. I think that's pretty clear. And the men that he attached himself to were mainly philosophers. And they were also, when we say philosophers, we, not like a philosopher as we would think of it today, um, like a university lecturer, but the, the philosophers that he knew, um, many of them, I think the majority of them were also military generals and highly accomplished Roman statesmen, as well as being philosophers. Philosophy in the ancient world, um, in many cases, probably the majority of cases was more, would be more like we would think of uh, Buddhism or yoga being today. It was more of a philosophy of life, a, a lifestyle and a way of life. Like in Rome, you would typically, um, not always, but, but to a large extent, very often you would recognize a philosopher if you walk past one in the street, which you can't say today, right? Uh, philosophy became bookish at some point in history. It became something you do in a library. Uh, mm. in a seminar room and it wasn't like that uh, in ancient Greece and Rome it was more like a, a western yoga um, philosophers dressed in a particular way they ate in a particular way they slept in a particular way um, almost a little bit like a kind of monastic style a kind of precursor of, of Christian monasticism um, and they grew their beards and their hair in a particular style and, and arguably you would even be able to tell which school of philosophy someone followed by the style of their beard um, some scholars believe. So philosophy was a whole way of life uh, in the ancient world. And the guys that Marcus uh, attached himself to, I think he was looking for a sense of purpose, a sense of direction in his life. And early on, I guess, luckily, he uh, attached himself to, uh, to philosophers. I'll tell you a little aside. He says something in the meditations. Again, there are many things he says that people kind of skim over, don't really notice unless you look, you read it a hundred times and you look very closely at what's right in front of your eyes. He says he's grateful that he didn't fall into the hands of a sophist mm. when he was a young man. And what he means by that is he was living during a period in history um, during a movement called the Second Sophistic, when the Greek sophists were celebrities, they were um, orators, like um, some self-improvement gurus today or <clears throat> celebrities. People who, they were like internet, the sophists were like internet influencers in a way of their day, right? So they traveled from city to city, they gave speeches, they had huge followings, they became very wealthy. But the danger that Socrates identified in the sophists was that they would say, they became people pleasers. So they would say whatever kind of got more attention, they became sensationalist, they would say things that they thought the audience wanted to hear. And Socrates said, well, like, these guys abandon truth and wisdom in favor of whatever kind of wins them the biggest round of applause from the biggest audience, basically. They're kind of, the risk is that, as we would put it today, that they sell out, basically, right? Nowadays. <laughs> and that, like, same as today, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, Marcus has said to himself, I'm really grateful that I didn't fall into the hands of one of those guys, um, which he could easily have done. Like uh, the most famous sophist in the world a guy called Herodes Atticus at that time, who actually used to live in the same house as Marcus's mother in his maternal grandfather's house. So he was a family friend and he became his teacher later in life. But luckily for Marcus, he was in Athens when he was uh, in his young teens. And so he wasn't kind of indoctrinated into this kind of uh, lifestyle by this guy. He fell rather into the hands of Stoic philosophers um, and they focused more on the pursuit of truth 
and reason and wisdom, um, which is what Marcus ended up completely immersing himself in. Hmm. How does it end, the novel? Oh, in the novel, um, similar to How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, um, we thought it's a good idea to start with his death uh, and then kind of go through the events of his life and then return to his death. So we start off with the outward events of his death, like what happened and the, the people around him and what was going on. And then we return to it at the end and, and we go into, into his mind, like what was going through his mind as he was dying. So that's easy to do, like in a, in a sense, because in the meditations, he talks a lot about his attitudes towards death. A big part of stoicism is preparing for death. So stoics are perfect for that. He told us a huge amount uh, about like how he felt about the idea of dying. So we can imagine him as he's dying of the plague, um, <laughs> going through some of the things that he previously said to himself and the things that he might be uh, saying and visualizing. Um, and then, you know, as always in history, there it's like a pendulum swing. You know, Marcus dies and then we have Commodus who reverses many of his father's decisions, becomes quite a bad emperor. Incidentally, uh, the, the histories suggest that Commodus was a bad emperor not because he was an inherently cruel person, but because he was a coward and he was gullible, is what we're told. And mm. he was surrounded by hangers-on. Mm. Like, uh, rich people, uh, you know, one of the downsides of wealth and success, people will often say, even today celebrities will say, is you attract hangers-on. So you, you attract people who just want a piece of you, like, and they'll pretend to be your friend and stuff like that, but they really just want... Your, you know, your success and your wealth and stuff. And that happened to Commodus. Like, he got surrounded by hangers-on. And they said, why are we out here in the mud, like, in the cold, in the army camp? Can't we just go back to Rome? It's much cooler there. And so they twisted his arm and persuaded him to go back to Rome and just party, like, mm. and throw big celebrations. And in one fell swoop by doing that, he alienated himself from the military and the Senate. Like, they, he made himself seem ridiculous and cowardly in their eyes. Now, if you're a Roman emperor, uh, you have kind of three options in terms of maintaining power. You have the military behind you, big time, and that could secure your position. You have the Senate behind you, which is sometimes difficult, like, but that could secure your position. But if you lose the military and the Senate, your third option like, is to have the general public supporting you. And the way to do that, by becoming a populist, is by throwing money at them and becoming kind of a celebrity figure, um, becoming building a sort of cult of celebrity around yourself, throwing big extravagant parties and games. And Marcus realized that was a very toxic way to hold on to power. And that's mm -hmm. kind of what happened to Commodus. He went kind of crazy, um, paranoid, like everything kind of gradually fell apart from him. Um, and, uh, you know, people say like the lifestyle also corrupted him like drink and drugs and you know like uh sex and kind of like you know just the general corruption of having like supreme wealth and you know blowing it all on parties every day like uh marcus realized that that's not sustainable like mm. but commodus kind of fell into that that trap of debauchery allegedly um but the other thing i'd say just historically about that some people think marcus made a big mistake by allowing commodus to succeed him and i think in some ways he did 
Um, but I'd qualify that a little bit by saying that the alternative might have been that a civil war would have broken out. Marcus faced a civil war, but he managed to put it down. Mm. Uh, if there wasn't a clear succession, then there, there would quite likely have been a civil war. And I think, it, in part, it was the Senate that wanted Commodus to be appointed his successor, because I think many people throughout the Roman Empire, more so outside of Rome itself in the provinces, would believe would have said that a bad emperor is better than a civil war. Why? Because what can he do? Like, you know, he'll have political purgages, he'll execute people, he'll cause a lot of problems. But a civil war, like, would tear the whole empire apart and cause the deaths potentially of millions of people. Like, so I think they would have said this is the least worst option. Like, you know, yes, he's an idiot, like, he's a coward and he's gullible and stuff. But we'd rather have that than like several generals like tearing the empire apart, fighting over it. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a super fascinating story, and it's also historical. It's real history <laughs> that has happened. And I'm yeah, like super excited for the uh, novel to come out. Uh, when does it come out? It's going to be out next summer. Like I think it's uh, coming out around about June. Okay. And I've also got another book that I think is coming out around about the same time. Um, that's a biography, a prose biography of Marcus Aurelius for Yale University Press. Nice. Uh, so that'll come out about the, the same time as well. But actually, we're going to release before then uh, a PDF, like a, a download that people can kind of download for free. And we've done things like this in the past, but we wanted to have one that's almost like a kind of National Geographic guide, historic guide that is like a little magazine. And it will talk about the different tribes that Marcus was dealing with, the famous figures in his life. It'll have little timelines and maps and yes. things like that. Like a sort of illustrated guide to give people a little bit more of the historical context. So that I think I'm hoping that will be ready in January. Like, and then uh, you know people can check that out. Um, and in the meantime, if they follow us on Instagram and social media and stuff, they'll see a lot of examples of the the illustrations from the graphic novel already. Awesome. I'm <laughs> looking forward to it. It's, actually, it's finished. The whole thing's finished, but it's, it's publishing moves slowly. So it won't be until Jan, uh, June before it actually hits the shelves. But uh, uh, we finished the illustrations like about a month ago, I think. Nice, nice. Um, we'll, before I ask my last question, like, um, where can people learn more about you and your work? And uh, where can they like sign up for the newsletter? Well, it's really easy. My website is just my name. It's just Donald Robertson, all one word, dot name. So instead of dot com, it's dot N-A-M-E. And I've got loads of stuff on social media. I've got lots of free e-learning courses and things and books that people can download and stuff. I've done lots of videos and things. Um, so yeah, people go there and check out the social media accounts. Like They'll find a like, bunch of, like, they could spend a long time going through all of the kind of stuff on stoicism but you know stoicism is for life it's not just for christmas like people get into stoicism and they stay into it like uh they you know they they start checking it out and then often decades later they're they're still kind of immersed in the subject i find i yeah. got into stoicism nearly three decades ago like you know and i i've never got bored with it like it's kind of like when people get into buddhism or something it, often it becomes a lifelong thing Mm, gotcha yeah yeah it's it's true like it's a yeah you always and we even with if you read the meditations the book then uh like you read it several times in your life and you always learn something yeah. new from that because you, you, you read have... it 
And then there's all, we didn't mention that there's the other famous, we should say the famous Stoics. Marcus Aurelius is one of them, but many people have heard of Seneca. Mm. Um, we have many writings from Seneca. Uh, he was the speech writer and uh, rhetoric tutor to the Emperor Nero. Epictetus, many people love Epictetus. We have many writings from Epictetus. And also people will hopefully, I hope they may have heard of Cicero, because Cicero was the most famous orator of uh, antiquity. And uh, Cicero wasn't a Stoic, but he was really interested in Stoicism and wrote extensively about the Stoics. So he's also one of our main sources. So you could spend a lifetime just studying the ancient sources that survive today on Stoicism. And also there's lots of good modern books. There's Ryan Holiday's books, Massimo Colucci's books, um, there's, I see new books on Stoicism come out every day and lots mm. of magazine articles and podcasts all the time coming out about Stoicism now yeah. um, and there's a community of people that are interested in modern Stoicism the Facebook group I run has nearly 100,000 members nice. like it, it went from being a kind of nerdy kind of niche thing to being like a, a, a movement in a sense like a, you know, a yeah. whole community formed around it that's right. Yeah, that's uh, good to hear. Good to see it as well. And people embracing more uh, wisdom <laughs> in their life. Uh, and my last question is going to be more like a yeah, topic related, like um, mm -hmm. who would be like one of the uh, famous dead philosophers who would you like have, uh, let's say, like a lunch with or a dinner with? So you can talk mm. with them. And... Well, that's easy. Right. <laughs> so I, I love my, my two favorite philosophers. I love Marcus Aurelius, but Marcus Aurelius um, wasn't a kind of original thinker. He took other people's philosophy and he applied it. And the real, I think any lover of ancient philosophy is probably going to say the quintessential Greek philosopher is Socrates. And mm. Socrates is a whole different ballgame. He's the, a very different character from Marcus Aurelius. Yes. Socrates is like layer upon layer upon layer of an onion. He's a much more complex figure. He has a much more complex attitude to philosophy. In Marcus Aurelius, you get a kind of bullet point version of Socratic philosophy. So, so Socrates was a fascinating, complex figure. He'd be a really good guy um, to have dinner uh, with. And, and actually, you know, two of the main sources we have for Socrates are the Dialogues of Plato and dialogues of an Athenian general called Xenophon, who's a student of mm. Socrates, that survived today. And both of them write symposia. So they both write famous dialogues that describe almost like a play um, how Socrates behaved at a dinner party. Like, so we actually have like really good, really famous examples of what it was like to have a, a, a glass of wine with Socrates. Okay. Right, and sat around and have dinner with him. He said, you know, that one of the, I wanted to mention something to you. We'll talk about this another day, actually. I want to know what you think about something. It's come to me gradually over time, spending more time in Greece, that the Greeks have, the ancient Greeks had a kind of meta philosophy, an underlying philosophy, which comes from the cult of Apollo, the god um, uh, of the arts. And uh, it's all about moderation. So it's very broad advice, but the basic go-to advice for the ancient Greeks was nothing in excess, all things in moderation. And that goes hand in hand with another famous slogan of the Temple of Apollo, which is know thyself. So in order to know what's excessive for you, you need to study yourself. 
Why you need to know your own body, know your own character, know your own habits, and then figure out what's too much for you, what's too much sleep, what's too much food, you know, what's too much exercise, and what's not enough sleep, not enough food, not enough exercise. Like know thyself, all things in moderation, or nothing in excess. And that's Socrates talks very much about those themes. He says it's like water. They're uh, in Xenophon's Symposium. I'll leave you with this little anecdote. They're having this is why I'd like to have a drink with Socrates, right? So they're all sitting around uh, having a party, and everyone's very excited. Um, and uh, they're beginning to pour the drinks. And Socrates says, "My advice is that when people are drinking, they often drink too much because it tastes real nice. Like so, it's tempting uh, to drink too much." But he says, "I think that spoils the conversation." But a little bit of wine, he says, potentially helps people to socialize. And he says it's like watering a plant. Like, if you don't give it enough water, then it withers and dies. But if you give it too much water, then it's, it starts to wilt and you kill it, right? He says a dinner party is like that. It's good to have just the right amount. And he says because there's a natural tendency for people to, to have too much, he says, I think we should use smaller cups. Like, so we serve each other, like, in smaller quantities of alcohol and we can pace ourselves and drink more slowly and that way the conversation will flow more freely and that's a good example of Socrates very down to earth very kind of simple pragmatic advice that he gives his friends but also links into much more profound more abstract more general advice about this kind of philosophy of moderation and avoiding excess mm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, like super, super easy, but at the same time, very kind of deep as well. Well, it was a great uh, talking with you, and uh, yeah, looking forward to the novel and uh, looking forward to the next book as well. It sounds really good. Well, yeah, awesome. It's been a pleasure as always. Uh, yeah, maybe sometime when the other books come out, we can have another chance to chat in the future. Like, uh, as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking, yeah, there's loads of other things that we could be chatting about. <laughs> Maybe about diet and exercise in ancient Greece and stuff, like definitely. I, I think uh, your audience might be interested. Um, but thanks, for, thanks again for having me on your show. Yeah, my pleasure.